Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about those banking and railroad disasters that are in the recent history of our country. We're going to talk about layoffs in the high-tech industry. We're going to talk about food insecurity, the latest euphemism for hunger in America. And then in the second half, I'm going to try to explain how American history gives us reason to believe in the possibility and indeed in the likelihood of a political and economic surge to the left here in the United States and what lessons from the past surges we need to have in our minds as the next one emerges. So let's jump right in. I won't need to go over what has happened. We had a catastrophe of rail derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. You all know about that. It got a good bit of attention. And I think you all know for sure about the collapse of banks in California, in New York, in Switzerland, and beyond that are roiling the financial markets. What you have heard much less about are the actualities of mass struggles in the world designed to go after that kind of an issue. What do I mean? Millions of people have been in the streets of France now for quite a while, and tens of thousands have been in the streets of Greece quite a while. And it's all about governments and big businesses getting together to avoid paying taxes in a difficult economic time by loading the costs of the decline of Western capitalism onto the mass of people. In the case of one example, not maintaining the safety rules of railroads. In another example, not maintaining proper supervision on the profit-driven decisions of private banks. This outrages people as it should. It hurts people badly. And in Greece and France, there's a mass response to it. There isn't yet in the United States. And I want to talk about that. What do we have instead? We have a pathetic struggle, unreal in its basis, between our two old, tired political parties. So in the case of the railroad disaster in East Palestine, we had the Trump people blaming Biden and the Biden people blaming Trump. Transportation Secretary Buttigieg classically pointing the finger as if this blame wasn't on both of their heads. Republicans and Democrats alike have failed to manage our railroad system have failed to supervise the private railroad system, have capitulated to the demands of the railroad companies to remove or lighten or lessen the safety regulations put in after previous catastrophes, just like the one in East Palestine. And we have the same pathetic story elsewhere. New York Governor Hochul speaks as if we're supposed to believe her about having a laser focus 
on safety, her words, as if she and the Democratic Party of New York and the governor before her, Mr. Cuomo, hadn't also contributed to relaxing the regulations of safety for the railroads. The story never stops. We have had railroad disasters for the entire history of railroads in this country, and always for the same reason. Profit-driven shortcuts on the safety question, and then a catastrophe, and then a lot of noise and reforms, and then they are weakened and diluted, and we have another catastrophe and another outcry. Unbelievable. The mass of people in the streets of Greece and France, that's a whole nother story. That's not so easy to fob off. And that's why that tradition is so important in those countries and why it has been so successful. Greece had a horrible train disaster a few weeks ago. And the French are fighting their government and their ruling class of businesses who don't want to pay the taxes that would be necessary to give the pension at age 62 that has been won over decades of struggle by the French working class, and they won't have it. No minor matter, and the lesson for Americans there is obvious. You need to have another political party, one that's not in bed with the business community, one that's not in bed with the game of pretend reform and pretend limits on profitability in the name of safety. You got to have a party that isn't putting capitalism and its profits first. My next update has to do with high-tech companies companies that have been laying off hundreds of thousands of workers in recent months. And I want to drive home what that means. Number one, it worsens the inequality of income in our country. You're, you're depriving workers whose wages and incomes were significant of those wages and incomes. You're making them poorer. And you're making everybody they spent money on poorer. Meanwhile, money that isn't being used to pay their salaries is being used to buy back shares of the same company's stock in the stock market. And you know what that does when the company starts buying its own stock? It pushes the price up of those stocks. And who does that advantage? The people who own such stocks. And let me remind you a basic statistic. The richest 10% of people in this country own 80% of the stock. So if you substitute a stock buyback program for hiring hundreds of thousands of workers, you're making workers poor and the rich richer. That's what you're doing. And who's doing it? The boards of directors of the high-tech companies. You know, Apple, Google, Intel, all of that. A tiny group of people that you could get in a small auditorium, all of them, all the boards of directors of, say, the 20, 30, 40 biggest high-tech companies, that's a small, tiny number of people are making the decision to worsen the inequality of income and wealth by using money to buy back shares rather than to keep engineers and others working. What a study in the undemocratic 
damage our economic system does. And the last update for this morning is really painful because it's one more sign of the growing contrasts of American capitalism. As it declines, it becomes more and more unequal. That's why the tensions in our society are rising. That's why the social problems are getting worse. That's why the incompetence or inability of our leaders to cope is becoming so much more obvious. I want to share with you a study, newly completed in, toward the end of last year, 2022, produced in and by the University of Southern California, USC, and in particular, the medical school there, known as the Keck, K-E-C-K, Keck Medical School. A study was undertaken of Los Angeles County in California, a study of its food insecurity problem. In other words, hunger. What is the problem of hunger? How many people are not able to get enough food to live a normal, healthy life? That is what they were studying. Why now? Because they knew already at the end of last year that in March of 2023, that's right, just a very small time ago, would be the last month that about 1.4 million people in Los Angeles County alone would no longer get their pandemic-era supplements in terms of funds for food the SNAP program, or what we used to call food stamps. The eligibility for them was not renewed. Thank you, Mr. Biden, Democrats, and Republicans. So the 1.4 people who received these supplements won't. All the affected households will get at least $95 less per month to buy food than they used to, and some will get as much as $250 less per month to buy food. 37% of the poor in L.A., those 1.4 who are getting food stamps of one kind or another, 37% of them, over a third of the poor, right, experienced food insecurity last year. In other words, they were poor enough that they didn't know whether they would have enough food at their next mealtime and often experienced insufficient food to get by. 33% of black and Latino families versus 11% of white families experienced food insecurity. Let me, let me stress, if you have that many people that are in trouble financially getting food stamps and you have this number that are hungry, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people in one county, Los Angeles County, big county, but one county. 
are having trouble with their food, 40% of food insecure households included children. If you know anything about nutrition and the human body, you'll know that children suffer all kinds of long-term difficulty if they're not given enough food. The immorality of this, I can't even begin to touch it. The absurdity in a country as wealthy as ours, which just committed over a hundred billion dollars to a war in another country, but cannot deal with the people who haven't enough food? Those of you who take morality or ethics seriously, I'll leave to you finding some way to justify something as outrageous as all of this. I'm an economist, so I want to comment on the irrationality of a system like this. You don't feed people enough, you make every other physical, medical, mental health problem worse. Everybody knows that. Countless statistics confirm it. We are going to create an entire generation of people presenting all kinds of physical and mental health problems, costing this society vast amounts of money to give them the medical care they'll try to get for the diseases we could have made less serious or avoided had we dealt with the problem of hunger when they were kids. Come on. It's immoral, it's irrational, and it's a fin financial waste. The cost of keeping rich people rich is becoming unbearable in this declining capitalist system. We've come to the end of the first half of today's show. Please stay with me. I think you'll find the second half interesting and important as well. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I want to address, particularly today, those of you that have felt at one moment or another over recent weeks, months, even years, a kind of sadness, maybe even a touch of depression about how things are developing, especially here in the United States, but globally. Quite a few folks have been feeling powerless, not clear about a way forward, and yet deeply and increasingly distressed by the rising inequality, the instability, the polarizing political hostilities everywhere, and are upset, and rightly so, by right-wing impulses and movements that come to the fore, and wondering and worrying about a way forward. Is there one? What might it be? I want with you to go through a moment of American history when that kind of feeling was widespread and was overcome, because I want to leave you with the lesson what we were able to do before, we can do again, only even better this time. So I want to go back about a hundred years to the 1920s and 30s to talk about what happened there. The 1920s were a time 
of despair and upset, covered over by a kind of frenetic energy. The frenetic energy was captured in the phrase, the Roaring Twenties, which is what people talked about. The image was of flappers dancing. The image was of excess. The image was of, of parties in Florida as the land was gobbled up for resorts and all of that. But the truth is, people were becoming increasingly depressed and for good reason. The labor movement in those years was tired and old. It had fought valiant struggles at the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th. There had been the explosion of interest in the American Socialist Party and its leader, Eugene Victor Debs. But the war, World War I, and the decline of the Socialist Party and the tired decline of the labor movement left people in the kind of mood they are in now. That's why I'm picking it. But something amazing happened in the 1930s. An entirely new labor movement exploded onto the scene. We had literally the opposite in the 1930s, called the CIO, relative to what we had had before, the AFL. The AFL organized skilled workers into relatively small units who were able to get, because they were skilled, decent wages, since it was difficult for an employer to replace a skilled worker with someone off the street. The CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, started by John L. Lewis, the head of the Mine Workers Union in America, set its sights on all workers, skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled, industry by industry. And across the 1930s, they organized millions. They became much bigger than the AFL. But more importantly, they showed working people that if you get together and you set your sights on it, you can do something in the United States that people had despaired of doing, organizing millions of people into labor unions that were militant and powerful. There is no reason to believe that what we in fact accomplished in the United States in the 20s and 30s, that transformation, cannot be done again. Likewise, with an older, tired labor movement being upstaged, if you like, by a surging new one. It's happened before. It can happen again. In the 1920s, the American working class was really beset by a number of really bad scenes. There was the persecution of militant workers, the famous Sacco and Vanzetti case in the 1920s, the Palmer raids in which people were called socialists or communists or anarchists, and the police doing the work that the business community wanted, trying to crush efforts to organize unions, efforts to organize social movements to advance the conditions of the mass of working people. We know the Southern version of it, the Ku Klux Klan and lynching. We had a country that was repressing the efforts of 
oppressed people to break out of their oppression. And we thought, wow, how depressing. Flapper era, not much happening in the way of social progress. And then all these right-wing repressive experiences, again, similar to today. And then what did we have? The Great Depression hit, and in a few years, we had an upsurge of left-wing progressive organizations. In the 1930s, the dominant reality for most Americans was an active Communist Party, two active Socialist Parties, and a Democratic Party transformed from sleepy, elite, rich family domination, its donors, if you like, into a party that had a powerful left wing of CIO unions, two socialist parties, and a communist party. And I want to stress what they were able to accomplish, the, that alliance, later called the New Deal Coalition, Communist Socialists and the CIO Industrial Union Movement, only because of their agitation and their demands did a center-of-the-road president like Franklin Roosevelt become a left-leaning president that was all forced from below by this movement. And let's see what they got. For those of you who are skeptical of what can be achieved, the social security system. Think about it with me. In the midst of a depression, millions of people out of work, the government had no money because out-of-work people and, and shut-down factories didn't pay taxes. The government had no money. People were desperate. We created the first social security system in American history. The president had to go before the American people on the radio and say, we've created a system. Everybody who gets to be 65 years of age or older will get a pension, a check from the government, in rewarding them for a lifetime of work in an office, a factory, a store, or at home. Here's a check every month for the rest of your life. We're going to give you a dignified old age. We're going to give you a retirement. We're going to do something for the mass of people. Wow. Number two, we got mass federal unemployment insurance. We've never had that before. You lose your job. You go wait in line at the church for a food handout. Now you get a, it's an insurance program. You, you get a check every week for a year or two to help you find another job. Number three, we passed the first minimum wage. Employers could not disrespect human beings by paying them less than a living wage. And for the unemployed, the government created a federal jobs program that gave 15 million unemployed people a job, an income, an ability to keep their home by meeting their mortgage payment, and so on. So don't tell me that we can't have a powerful left-wing movement. Those benefits, and I just gave you the four big ones, there are many more. They were achieved by a union between a labor movement and social movements. In those days, the social movements were organized in and through two socialist and one communist party. 
Today we have what we call social movements, but they're not yet unified in a political party. And when that happens, they may again have the ability to win enormous gains so powerful and so beloved by the American people that we, despite efforts to get rid of them, we have Social Security, unemployment compensation, a minimum wage to this day. We don't have public employment because both the Republican and Democratic parties have betrayed that promise to the American people. But I want to leave you with a balanced picture. There were things that were failed to be done. What, what the struggles of the 1930s show, how much you can achieve, how far you can reform a capitalism, how far the government can compensate for the failures, the injustices, and the inequalities of private capitalism. The failure was not to recognize that you have to change the system if the reforms you achieve are to survive. You have to change the system because if you don't, every one of those reforms will confront the capitalist, the employer class, with a problem to solve, with an obstacle to overcome. Those changes won by the working class in the 1930s came at the expense of profits, and the employers and the corporations want to maximize profits. As they tell us, that's what they're in business to do. So they had an incentive to undo the New Deal, to get rid of Social Security. They've been trying that for decades. To get rid of un unemployment compensation been trying for decades. To get rid of the minimum wage, well, the inflation allows them to do that. The minimum wage is $7.25, last set in 2009, hasn't been raised since then, even though prices have gone up a lot since then every year. You're savaging the minimum wage. They, they won on that, took it back, destroyed it. And they've never done public jobs the way they did in the 30s ever again. So it turns out, if you leave the system in place, you're leaving in place the business community that has every incentive to undo whatever reforms you were able to win. And they've done it. That's what the last 50 years of American history is about. In Europe, they call it austerity. Whatever you call it, it's taking back the reforms. What's the lesson here? The lesson is two things. One, we can, if we give ourselves to it, organize the movements, the relationships, the commitments, the feeling to move this country in a progressive direction. We've done it before, and we can do it again. A tired old labor movement is not an, an obstacle we can't overcome. Right wing lurching around, we overcame lynching and the Ku Klux Klan at least to a remarkable extent. And we overcame the other right-wing obstacles to achieve a left-wing upsurge we can be proud of. But we can't leave in place the employer-employee relationship, because if we do, the employers will again undo the reforms if and when we win them. This time we have to recognize 
along with the reforms, you got to change the system. If we make workers a community that democratically runs the enterprise, we will have in place the structure that will make reforms, but also preserve reforms, because we will have removed both the incentive and the capability in the hands of a minority to keep themselves from having to make an economic reality that we're capable of, but keep denying ourselves in the name of maintaining a profit system benefiting only a few. Thanking you for your attention. Let me say again that I look forward to speaking with you again next week.